Hi, my name is Christine, and I'm your host for the Bytesonal Podcast. Ding! Well, 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 it has been a while, folks. Happy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or whenever you're listening to this episode. Hope you guys are doing well and are keeping safe. For the current listeners, thanks for coming back and sticking around. For the new listeners, welcome to the podcast. This is the Bytesonal Podcast, where we talk about mental health and surviving your 20s. Today, I have an extremely knowledgeable guest on the podcast. Her name is Anna from Anna Psychology on YouTube. She's a clinical psychology doctorate student and therapist in Chicago. I discovered her videos, uh, I want to say back in March at the start of the pandemic. It was 2, 3, 4 a.m. and, you know, the perfect time to be catastrophizing the state of the world. And I stumbled upon the videos and thought they were very informative and delivered in a way that was brief and easy to understand. Um, As a person in my 20s, I thought these are very relatable topics, very relevant. And I really liked her videos about um, her her perspective videos, where she broke things down and talked about the chosen topic from a more analytical or psychological standpoint, let's say. And like many, I came to watch Anna, but stayed for her cat, Countess Chianti, and she's quite cute. And from just her cameos in the videos, you can definitely tell she has a personality. Which is a great segue into today's episode. We talked about borderline personality disorder. Uh, We talked about what it is in the DSM, to the epidemiology, to the gold standards in clinical management, then more importantly, how to recognize and support someone who may have BPD. We also talked about her YouTube channel a little bit and how she got started, why she started, and where she wants to go with the channel in the future. Overall, it was an absolute pleasure to learn about a topic that's not typically discussed and is often misunderstood um, by many therapists, but also the public. And as a disclaimer, the purpose of this episode is strictly educational. If you or someone you know are experiencing these signs and symptoms, please consult a medical doctor and or a mental health professional for further advice and recommendations. For acute cases and emergencies, please contact your local ER or local distress center. Take care of yourselves, guys. Without further ado, here's your episode with Anna. Okay, it's recording. Hi, Anna. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. Uh, What's the weather like where you are? It looks like it's sunny. I'm in Chicago, so this is very rare. Oh, Chicago's very nice. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're we're from Toronto, so the weather the weather around here has been a little bit crazy. We had a tornado warning wow. earlier last week. I don't know if you get tornadoes in Chicago, but no, I didn't even know that there were tornadoes in Canada. Right? Like, are you familiar with like the like Saskatchewan and like the plains? No. Okay, well, there's like a bit of Canada that's like a flat land, so mm-hmm. um, tornadoes happen around there, but around Toronto, it's like a metropolis, uh, so I don't know, a couple of my friends and I, we woke up and we saw like, there's a tornado warning, and we're like, what? Wow. So how's how's Chicago doing so far with the COVID, and just how's um, Chicago? It looked like it was going up into a second wave, so... Mm-hmm. It's not good, but it's better than a lot of the states, definitely. What about yeah. you? I think Toronto is probably the hub of it, or the the province mm-hmm. that we're in is Ontario. I know Ontario had it rough, and then Montreal and Quebec had it pretty mm-hmm. rough at some point, too. And then the full East Coast, like where Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, those guys seem to be okay as of right now, like minimal cases. Yeah, that's good, yeah. at least. Yeah. Anyway, so, so the reason why I asked you on the podcast today is not to not to ask you about Chicago, but to <laughs> ask you about just to pick your brain because uh, I personally found you on YouTube, and uh, I don't I don't really know when you started your YouTube channel, but I found you during the pandemic. So when mm-hmm. things kind of hit the fan in March and like you know I think everyone's life was a little bit disrupted and you know one night I was just 
freaking out in a corner or something and then you oh. came up you came up on my youtube uh, recommendations i was like wow this came at the right time and this girl's <laughs> videos are so digestible and it's so like high quality content like like no bs fillers if that makes sense so mm-hmm. um thank you for keeping up with that youtube stuff because it's been I, th- I think a lot of people have been finding it very helpful during the pandemic so thank you and thank you for having me on yeah no worries at all so th- the topic that i wanted to ask you about anna and you have covered some videos about this so if people are interested definitely go check out anna's channel but um the borderline personality disorder Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, it's kind of a topic that hits near and dear. So uh, I just wanted to call you on and ask an ex- expert. So in terms of borderline personality disorders, or let's just start with like personality personality disorders itself, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. So could you yeah. explain it? Yeah. So um, personality disorders is a section of the DSM, which is the book that um, professionals use to diagnose people. Um, so when it's a personality disorder, it's really a part of your personality. So who you are as a person. Um, so by definition, it's pretty enduring and inflexible and mm-hmm. stable over time. Um, it's both internal. So things like impulsivity would be internal and external. So the external part of impulsivity would be like risk taking behavior, like compulsive shopping, driving under the influence, things like that. Mm-hmm. And personality disorders deviate from the expectations of a person's culture. So um, it's not something that would be considered a normal behavior within that culture, mm-hmm. which gets interesting because we know now how there are certain trends in like the U.S., for example, where um, narcissism is on the rise. Yep. So that's interesting because it's starting to get a little bit more socially acceptable to have narcissistic traits. Exactly. So personality disorders, they're also very pervasive. So it's not just like you're experiencing this behavior towards one person or in one context. It's really pretty global. So it encompasses a lot of aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. And it usually comes on during adolescence or early adulthood. So this is when people's personality is starting to form, um, Mm -hmm. which is why it wouldn't make sense for it to come on at let's say age 50 because your personality is already formed at that age yeah exactly and another criteria is that you have to have distress or impairment so distress would be um, a subjective feeling of distress because of the symptoms and impairment would be something is getting in the way of you functioning in everyday life and Mm -hmm. that's usually present in most mental disorders as well as a criteria yeah and then it has to manifest in two or more of the following areas. So cognition, affect, interpersonal functioning, or impulse control. And mm-hmm. it can't be better explained by a medical condition like a traumatic brain injury or another mental disorder or a substance. Mm-hmm. I, I really like how you mentioned um, like it's almost like culturally defined when it comes to mental illnesses mm-hmm. itself and it's and like more specifically borderline uh, not borderline personality disorder but personality disorders as a whole like in let's like you said in North America it's probably more acceptable to you know you know uh, maybe through social media and stuff kind of talk about yourself and post yeah. pictures about yourself and bring yourself up in conversations talk about your achievements and what you have things like that Whereas in, let's say, Asian cultures, that's not necessarily um, acceptable or people just don't do that. And they're very mm-hmm. um, per, like private about their personal lives. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of borderline personality disorder itself, like it, from I think moving forward, is it okay if we call it BPD because my yeah. tongue... My tongue is just in a twist right now. So for BPD, um, whether it's in your own words or within the criterion of the DSM itself, like, could you tell us a little bit more about BPD? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about BPD, kind of the key word that I think of is instability yeah. um, because it's characterized by a lot of instability in relationships, in your identity, in emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's considered a cluster B personality disorder. So 
Um, cluster B is the one that is more dramatic in erratic disorders, along with narcissism, with histrionic, and with antisocial, which is psychopathy. Mm-hmm. When you look at certain mental disorders, um, how they evolved through history or mm-hmm. how they've changed um, through each DSM edition, let's say, like sometimes like things get taken out, put in, uh, the criterion list changes, things like that. Like, do you know of like the history of BPD and like when it was first seen in the world and how it evolved over time? Yeah, so it first became a diagnosis in the DSM-3, which was in 1980, Mm -hmm. and it stayed in the DSM for the next two versions. But um, symptoms of BPD have been documented for up to 3,000 years ago. Yeah. And it was first proposed as a disorder before it entered the DSM-3 in the 20th century, um, there's particularly this one psychoanalyst, Otto Kernberg, and he um, made this kind of confusing spectrum if you hear what words it includes. So he thinks that it was mm-hmm. healthy neurosis, which is like mild impairment, borderline, which is moderate severity, and psychosis, which is more severe and reality testing is compromised. Yeah. Um, And this might sound confusing because we now think of neurosis as one of the big five personality traits, um, you know, related to anxiety and depression. And now we think of borderline as related to BPD, Mm -hmm. which can range in severity. So it's not just that it can be moderate severity, like he proposed. And psychosis usually refers to psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, Mm -hmm. um, some of the manic stages and bipolar disorder. So that was just a confusing tangent about where the term borderline came from. Yeah. Um, And yeah, since it joined the DSM, there have been a lot of media portrayals of it. Um, Not always very accurate. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Have you seen Fatal Attraction? Uh, I haven't, actually. Yeah, I haven't either. I just heard of um, the scene where the woman burns his kids bunnies because she's mad that he doesn't want to have an affair with her anymore. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. It just, it sounds like a bit of a caricature of yeah. BPD. Yeah. Um, and then there's also girl interrupted where the main character, Winona Ryder's character, she's supposed to have it, mm-hmm. but she doesn't really seem to have many of the symptoms. Yeah. Um, if anything, Angelina Jolie's character seems to have kind of a mix of BPD and antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and um uh, yeah like uh, i was gonna bring it up later but marilyn monroe like i i I read the book called uh hate i hate you don't leave me Uh, and it's like one of those like books about bpd and um it brings up marilyn monroe and they talked a little bit about like just like her how promiscuous she was and Mm. you know she had really unstable relationships uh, of course, as an actress, she had to be kind of like a chameleon. She was very charismatic. She was very um, likable, attractive, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I personally don't know the relationship history of Marilyn Monroe. But, you know, there are there's some family history of mental illness. And she, I think she was uh, abused at some point growing up. Like, have you heard yeah. anything about Marilyn Monroe? Um, I haven't read the book you're talking about, but I've seen mm-hmm. um, a movie about her life. And I think yeah. her mom um, tried to kill either herself or Marilyn Monroe. And yeah. then she was in foster homes and I think she was abused. So, yeah, um, I mean, that sounds like it's the type of trauma that can definitely cause BPD. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm always cautious when people label women as BPD just because they have multiple sex partners that's I think one of the myths that BPD women are just promiscuous and that that should be stigmatized yeah which um definitely brings us into the next point one of the the notes that I had here was to ask you a little bit about like the epidemiology side of things so I guess if we were to categorize like how common or not common BPD is like by sex age group country like do you have any stats on that Um, so I think the 
worldwide average is 1.6%. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure by specific country. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that in inpatient settings, it does tend to be pretty high, around 20%. Um, and it's 75% seen in women. So only a quarter of the cases are in men, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because um, sometimes when you show um, a clinician the same presentation in men and women, they tend to diagnose the woman with BPD and the man with antisocial, which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess that would definitely depend on like the personal experience and the clinical experience of each like doctor, let's say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, with regards to, you said around 20% of inpatient uh, mm-hmm. is BPD. Yeah. Like I've, I've definitely heard that too, that there's a lot of um, cases where let's say the person is um, having like a, like a, like a more severe episode or psychosis, let's say like they like they it's it's not uncommon that they just go straight to the er if that makes sense if they've Mm -hmm. been in that situation before so 20 percent that's a lot right anna yeah it is um sometimes i hear these statistics and i wonder about their validity but yeah (laughs) no that's 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 very interesting and um, in terms of like risk factors like we we mentioned marilyn monroe she had that history of mental illness let's say like is there is there like you know, risk factors that can increase someone's chance of having BPD or presenting with BPD-like symptoms? Yeah. Um, so the example of Marilyn Monroe is actually great because um, we talked about how her mom had some similar um, symptoms. So there is a 50% heritability of it. So there's definitely a genetic component. Yeah. Um, as in most disorders, any kind of trauma, abuse, neglect, Um, having an invalidating family or a lot of attachment ruptures growing up, all of those are also risk factors. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also an increased risk of BPD if your family has substance use issues, antisocial Mm -hmm. or depressive or bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, When you look at, let's say, alcohol abuse, like if your parent was was an alcoholic let's say the chances of you being an alcoholic is higher i always wondered like how much you know these things are like passed on through like genetics itself Mm -hmm. or if it's like learned behavior or like you know just family family like habits or you know you know i mean like just how people behave in a family and it gets passed on and very much so with bpd like it's it's so it's like your interpersonal relationships right so it's like um you kind of learn to love based on how your parents kind of did it you know what i mean so mm-hmm. yeah um, absolutely so um, i guess like in, in research they've have they been able to distinguish like the genetic component versus like the social I, I don't know if my question makes sense yeah it makes sense um they usually do that with twin studies so they look mm-hmm. at um adopted twins who are in completely different families. And that's how they try to figure out how much of it is genetic and how much of it is social. Um, But I think, you know, it's pretty well accepted that environment does play a huge role and that um, Mm. we definitely model what we see, especially growing up. Yeah. Um, And my next little tidbit here for with comorbidities, uh, it seems that it's kind of general knowledge that anxiety disorders and depression kind of comes together. Uh, mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, depression is a mood disorder, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, so like, you know, I, I, usually when people people are diagnosed, they kind of get diagnosed with both, let's say. Uh, is there any comorbidities with uh, BPD and like other mental disorders that you might see? Yeah, um, so major depressive disorder and anxiety disorders, um, definitely pretty comorbid. Um, mm. There's something called abandonment depression in BPD, which is, it can meet the criteria for major depressive disorder, but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit more similar to atypical depression. Um, it has a lot of the same emptiness, a lot of the same other symptoms as major depressive disorder, but um, it's more um, trigger related. So if like your favorite person hits you up out of the blue, 
then your depressive symptoms can kind of disappear. Mm -hmm. And then the second they stop responding to you, then this abandonment depression can kick in again. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a lot of overlap with paranoia and social anxiety because that is kind of one of the symptoms. It's that you're really scared of being negatively evaluated and you've been hurt really badly in the past by people. So you just think it's going to happen again. Um, Also histrionic personality disorder. Um, I was saying how it's another one of the cluster B personality disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sometimes confused with BPD because sometimes when there are these frantic efforts to avoid being abandoned, people can assume that it's, you know, just attention seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, it's not so much attention seeking as it is trying to just appease the pain, the immense pain in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so while someone with histrionic might, you know, threaten to hurt themselves out of, you know, wanting some kind of attention, someone with BPD might do it just to be able to emotionally regulate because that's the only kind of coping mechanism they have. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, trauma-related disorders often comorbid as well, because like we were talking about, trauma can definitely trigger BPD. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For the people who don't know, I I guess you can kind of, could you tell us a little bit more about like the signs and symptoms, whether it's Mm -hmm. like just the uh, DSM-5 criterion or something? Yeah. Um, So... One of them, like I was saying, is these frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. And this can be real abandonment, like someone saying they're actually going to break up with you, or it can be something that's more perceived or imagined, like um, assuming someone's going to leave you because, for example, you saw them talking to someone else and you think now they're going to break up with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, a pattern of these really unstable and intense relationships where um, they're very high conflict. So um, Mm. people with BPD tend to switch between idealization. So thinking that every, that someone is like a perfect person and their favorite person. And then they do something that, you know, hurts them very deeply and maybe the person didn't even realize it. And then um, it goes straight into devaluation. So the person is completely bad and, there's nothing good about them. And this is also called splitting, which is a defense mm-hmm. mechanism. Yeah. Is splitting very like specific to BPD or is splitting, um, can, can it be found? Like, is it used in, to describe other behaviors and other disorders or is it BPD specific? Um, it's, it's definitely a hallmark of BPD, but mm. anyone can do it. So defense okay. mechanisms are for anyone regardless of diagnosis or lack of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, So people definitely, I definitely know people who use splitting who don't have an official diagnosis. Yeah, okay. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Um, No, no problem. Yeah, carry on on with your list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's also unstable sense of identity or self. Um, I don't know if you've seen the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I've heard of it for sure. It's it's so good. Is is it good? Yeah, it's a more accurate depiction of BPD. Um, And she says at one point, I don't know who I am without you. Mm. Um, So that's a really powerful quote for explaining this um, unstable sense of self Mm -hmm. and how dependent it is on other people. Yeah. Um, And of course, impulsivity in areas that can be potentially reckless or um, that can self-sabotage you, like spending, sex, substance Mm -hmm. abuse, reckless driving, binge eating, and other things. Mm -hmm. Another symptom is um, these recurring suicidal threats or behaviors or Mm -hmm. self-harm. So self-harm is a pretty big warning sign of BPD, although it's definitely seen in other disorders as well. So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes when clinicians see self-harm they assume bpd and it's definitely good to rule out but it's not always the case yeah um uh, and also emotional dysregulation so also called affective instability Mm -hmm. um so these intense mood swings um sudden depression irritability anxiety um, 
like you were saying, that's why there's so much comorbidity with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, another hallmark symptom is this chronic feeling of emptiness. Yeah. Um, and that's where it's kind of tricky to figure out, is it just depression or is it a different type of emptiness, you know, BPD emptiness? Yeah. Um, and it's not an official symptom of other disorders, but I would argue that it's also present in narcissism um, mm-hmm. because people who are narcissistic, they feel empty on the inside unless they have this constant admiration from people. Um, and also in antisocial because there it's characterized more by kind of like empty boredom. So unless something exciting and reckless and stimulating happens, there's just this kind of sense of boredom and emptiness. Yeah. Um, and kind of along the same lines as the emotional dysregulation, um, one of the symptoms is an intense anger that's out of proportion to mm-hmm. the context of what happened. And um, paranoia or dissociative symptoms, um, especially in periods of high stress. Um, mm-hmm. So dissociation can be things like derealization when you feel like the moment around you isn't real or Mm -hmm. depersonalization like an out-of-body experience yeah yeah i was totally gonna ask you to differentiate it because i think people kind of use that interchangeably as well Mm -hmm. um yeah no in terms of the symptoms itself like that's a that's a big list eh yeah and it, it almost seems like the person would be kind of at the mercy of their situation whether it's like And I guess with this, it's mostly, I want to say it's dependent on the external environment, like with their FP or their favorite person or the people Mm -hmm. around them, let's say. Um, In terms of like the the gold standards, let's say, for BPD, I know know like DBT and CBT are kind of like brothers of each other, but they're not quite the same. Mm -hmm. But I know between the two, DBT is traditionally used for BPD itself. Could you tell us a little bit more about current like uh, interventions or treatments? Yeah. Um, so DBT is a subtype of CBT. Um, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And DBT also brings in some more psychodynamic components. So the role of um, the past and the childhood as well. Yeah. Um, it was actually created by Marsha Linehan, who is herself diagnosed with BPD and she was once institutionalized for it when she was young. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the perfect example that, you know, BPD is treatable and people can go on to live very fulfilling lives despite the diagnosis. Yeah. And write books about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there's kind of four core features of um, DBT. So it's mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness. Mm. So the mindfulness helps with pretty much all of the symptoms. It's just a way of regulating and soothing, and it can also help you pay attention to interpersonal cues so that you don't misinterpret certain um, perceptions. Also distress tolerance um, is important just for being able to handle more intense emotions. And it kind of makes me wonder, is it that BPD is characterized by very intense emotions or Mm -hmm. just very low distress tolerance? Um, Mm -hmm. I think, I think probably very intense emotions because, you know, I know people with low distress tolerance who don't meet the criteria for BPD. Yeah. Um, But either way, it's very important to handle emotions without um, reacting in impulsive or reckless ways. Yeah. The emotion regulation component is pretty self-explanatory. It's just understanding and identifying your emotions and your triggers and coming up with better coping mechanisms than self-harm. Yeah. And the interpersonal effectiveness is teaching people how to communicate more effectively so that there's less conflict in their relationships and so that their relationships are less unstable. Yeah. And DBT is usually done in a group setting. Um, The interventions can be done individually, um, but usually it is a group setting for Mm. DBT groups. Um, So that's something that's important to keep in mind if, you know, certain people don't like the idea of group. 
like depending on which place you go to which which therapist or doctor you're you're working with they kind of do it like over like months or like modules let's say like Mm -hmm. uh and i know one of the the common not critiques but the feedback is like oh that's that's a lot of money right Mm -hmm. like i need to i need to commit to like let's say whatever x amount of months or sessions of of um like dbt let's say to kind of make it to the end um so I, uh, you know, just on like through online resources, like a lot of people kind of just like they they bought uh, her Marsha's her name, yes, uh, they kind of buy Marsha's book and they kind of just work through it themselves. Like that's another option too. It seems. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good option too. But I think with any personality disorder, it's kind of expected that the therapy is going to take a while, exactly, um, because it is something that is so enduring. So you have to work really hard and really long to change these patterns yeah um do you have any other like other than dbt's like alternatives Mm -hmm. there's also mentalization based therapy um Mm -hmm. this one's created by um, a psychologist named fonagi so mentalization is kind of similar to empathy it's like a more cognitive form of empathy it's kind of thinking about thinking Hmm. so being able to understand that people think differently from you. Um, And that's something that usually develops in early childhood. You know, the theory behind mentalization-based therapy is that those with DBT um, have a deficit in mentalization, that they never reached that developmental milestone when they were kids. Yeah. And I I think this is a good treatment to incorporate within other treatments. I'm not a very psychodynamic person so I don't yeah (laughs) I don't love using these alone um but there are some really good mentalization exercises that you can use within any therapy like um showing a picture and asking the client to describe what everyone in the picture is thinking or feeling yeah Um, I actually do that with all my assessment clients because it's a type of assessment to figure Mm -hmm. out kind of what's on their mind what themes persist and that's always really interesting but that's I guess interesting. Yeah. yeah but it can be used for um like fostering mentalization as well yeah like a litmus test for their internal environment right because mm-hmm. yeah you ask someone to look at a picture and they don't realize right away which what you're trying to figure out about them and it's hard to yeah. kind of push down what you're already thinking about yeah it's like why why am I looking at a picture of this cloud <laughs> And I guess depending on if it's a good day or bad day for you, it's like, oh, that's a happy cloud or like, crap, the cloud's yeah. gonna, that, that looks like a really sad cloud or some shit. Then there's also, um, you know, asking people to come up with metaphors for what they're feeling or what they're thinking, like comparing feeling emotionally turbulent with like stormy weather, for example. Another exercise is um, getting them to make a list of facts about themselves, like, um, this is my age, this is where I'm from, this is my gender. And then asking them to describe themselves without doing any, without including any of the things on their list. Um, Mm. So trying to really get at the root of who they are as a person when it's not dependent on external factors. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Another one is just making them describe an interaction very, very specifically, but also very objectively. Mm. Um, to really figure out, okay, well, why did you interpret this as um, this person wanting to hurt you? Is it possible that they just meant it in this way? Yeah. Um, And also doing that with future interactions and kind of role-playing and being able to figure out, you know, what's objective about these different scenarios that might come up. Yeah. For example, like I always use this analogy. It's like, let's say Anna and I are walking down walking down the road and you know i i see anna I'm like, oh it's anna so i i raise my hand and i wave at anna but then like anna just keeps walking and she's staring at her phone let's say <laughs> so there's two ways of interpreting it so you can be like oh um anna just hates me and like you know she, holy crap what did i do oh crap and then or you can catastrophize that way or you can kind of look at it and be like ah anna just didn't see me and like likely if you're talking from an objective standpoint th- there's two possibilities right mm-hmm. so is that like what you mean by like you know let's say you were to replay the situation again but be more objective 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they've done studies with like almost the exact same scenario and anxious, <laughs> anxious people tend to definitely assume that, you know, the worst case scenario is what's happening. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's also transference focused therapy. Um, this yeah. one was created by um, a psychologist named Kernberg. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the one I was talking about with the spectrum of severity that he proposed. The focus in transference focused therapy is really getting the splitting to reduce. Um, so getting them to think of people in more nuanced ways than just they're all good or they're all bad. Um, mm-hmm. And transference refers to how in therapy the client responds to the therapist. So for example, like treating them like the dad they never had, it's kind of, Mm -hmm. um, it sounds kind of like a caricature, but um, sometimes it happens. And so this type of therapy really leans into that by helping the client undo these patterns in the room with the therapist. So encouraging them to self-reflect more and integrate kind of contrasting aspects of their own identity to get a more nuanced idea of other people. Um, So for example, if a client kind of goes into a rage because the therapist had to reschedule an appointment, then you would definitely look at that in the next session. The therapist would ask, well, did you notice how you kind of went from idealizing me to completely devaluing me? And Mm. um, let's talk about how, you know, we handled the situation and whether Um, a more objective and nuanced way of understanding the situation can exist. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also medications. Those are also used for um, treating BPD, but usually they're more to treat the secondary symptoms than the disorder itself. There's no, I I don't think there's any FDA-approved medication for BPD specifically. Um, yeah. So usually it's like antidepressants for the depression, anti-anxiety medications, um, sometimes antipsychotics if it's a very severe um, version of the disorder or if there's mm-hmm. a co-occurring psychotic disorder. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the general consensus that I heard too. It's, it's mostly like talk therapy mm-hmm. that people respond pretty well. And it seems that uh, with DBT like alone, there's a very, very high success rate, right, Anna? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, And it's interesting because people think that personality disorders are not treatable. Yeah, which leads us perfectly into the next little point here. (laughs) Yeah, like that, that myth, it's like, it seems with with PDs, it seems like it's so pervasive, it's so entangled with who you are in your daily life that Mm -hmm. people think like, oh, I I can't, I I can't change how how would therapy help and things like that. Just like with your clients and patients, is that generally the consensus? Like, um, like BPD being untreatable, that's like a myth? Um, I mean, it's a misconception that yeah. exists in clinicians as well, that, you know, personality disorders are impossible to work with. But if you actually look at the data, there's a pretty good rate of um, it's, you know, recovering or the symptoms going away. Maybe yeah. you still have those tendencies from time to time, but um, you might not meet the full criteria anymore because a lot of the symptoms are gone with talk therapy yeah I don't know and like with with BPD itself as I think people think like I'm just gonna have like really bad relationships for the rest of my life and I can't get I know I can't date anyone I can't marry anyone because like at some point I think they realize like the degree of self-destruction and external destruction they can cause let's say so Mm -hmm. i think whether whether it's with bpd or other mental illnesses like whether it's depression or etc etc i think like you kind of carry your own stigma at some point and then you prevent yourself from i guess participating in things other people do naturally like dating let's say um so that's that's um it, it's really good to know and it's good to hear that it's something that can be addressed successfully yeah and um, I, we yeah. were talking about how long it takes to um be involved in the therapy like this um yeah. after about 10 years of outpatient treatment so um not when you're hospitalized when it's just you know going to the therapist once a mm-hmm. week 
about fifty mm-hmm. percent no longer meets the criteria for BPD. Yeah, um, that's ten years. But I've yeah. also yeah, it's <laughs> it's long. But but I've also read other studies where you know it's shorter treatments and there's even higher rates of recovery. Yeah. Um, but it does seem that usually it's the worst in you know young age, and then around thirties and forties, the instability mm-hmm. tends to die down. Um, it just makes me wonder, you know, is there something going on neurologically during that period that is more stressful? And that mm-hmm. would so- certainly make sense because we know that the brain's not really fully developed until about age 25. Yeah. Another list listed myth that I've heard, and we, we definitely touched upon this uh, earlier. So the myth being like women with BPD are promiscuous and attention-seeking. I think, mm-hmm. like I said, you differentiate it with HPD, which is really neat. But have you also generally heard that too? It's like women with BPD are just attention-seekers or it's used interchangeably, let's say? Yeah, I've definitely heard that. Um, and I think a lot of it lies in just misogyny, honestly. And, you know, people <laughs> saying you hear people saying all the time, like, women yeah. are crazy or my ex is so crazy which is kind Mm. of what um, the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend plays on is that conception that, you know, she's so unstable and she's just the crazy ex. Um, And, you know, it doesn't help that it's 75% seen in women. Mm. Um, But I'm pretty sure it would be lower if, you know, we looked at actually diagnosing it correctly in men instead of just diagnosing them with conduct disorder, antisocial or other things. Um, yeah. but yeah, usually, um, people have this conception of BPD being super attention seeking and manipulative. Um, when in reality, usually the manipulation is not done intentionally if it's there. Um, mm. usually it's just, you know, trying frantically to get that person to stay because you're just trying to get a grip on these really powerful emotions. Yeah. Um, it's not like, you know, narcissism or antisocial where, the manipulation mm-hmm. is pretty intentional. Yeah. So let's say let's say someone listening to this podcast, um, they know someone with BPD, or like now that you're describing all these things, they realize like, hmm, I think I know someone who would kind of fall into fall into this description. What would you recommend to like a loved one, like a family member, friend, or coworker? Like, how what would you recommend um, to people who have someone in their life who has BPD? Um, definitely therapy. The earlier, the better. Um, just yeah. you know, it does take a while to fix these patterns, so it's good to get a jump start on it. Um, yeah. And also, just for you know, yourself as being the loved one of someone with BPD can definitely be helpful to get couples or family therapy if possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really important when you're suggesting therapy to people to do it during a really neutral time, not like mid fight as a way to clap back at them for something you said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But besides therapy, just communicate your boundaries very clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, But expect some boundary testing especially in bpd but with you know anyone usually um so yeah make sure that you're gonna enforce those boundaries consistently because if you do it intermittently it's not really going to work so much um but also be empathic so you know understand that this person's in a great deal of pain and that's why they're lashing out because you know there's a lot of different stuff online of people saying like this person's crazy and you know it's interesting because they're complaining about this person not having empathy but at the same Mm -hmm. time they're not displaying a lot of empathy either yeah in terms of the paranoia or the you know social anxiety just kind of sit them down and express to them that you love them or you care about them whatever the situation might be and mm-hmm. that you're not going to leave them if, you know, you don't respond to their messages for a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, just take care of yourself. Get your own therapy if it's that, um, if it's affecting you that much. And if you decide that this person is not someone you want in your life, I think, you know, that's perfectly acceptable. It's your right. But yeah, I would just encourage you to 
have a safety plan in place because, you know, it can be really stressful for that person to be abandoned. So, you know, maybe like let their family member or someone close to them know that you're about to kind of break up with them as a partner or a friend or a loved one, whatever it might be. Yeah. If the person's in like high, high, high distress, like would you recommend them just to go to the ER? Yeah. So the rule of thumb is if they're in immediate danger, um, call 911 or there are also like local um, crisis hotlines that sometimes even come with mobile crisis teams. I don't know if the coronavirus has changed that at all, but that's mm-hmm. also really good if you don't want to you know, call the police or call the ambulance on them. They, there can be someone, a team of professionals that can ascertain, does this person actually need to be hospitalized or, you know, is would that do more harm than good? So that mm-hmm. would also be another good option. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's important to pay attention to these things because a big risk factor for BPD is impulsivity. That's something that always makes the risk of actually going through with an attempt of, you know, hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let's say if someone uh, listening to this podcast and they think they have, uh, they exhibit symptoms or behaviors of BPD, like what would you say to them? And let's say, who should they go talk to in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Um. I think it can definitely be helpful to find a therapist who specializes in personality disorders or BPD specifically, um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it is a little bit niche. So sometimes if you go to a therapist, they might misdiagnose you like, oh, I see symptoms of anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. or paranoia without really realizing that it's something that kind of encompasses all of these is what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really good to get the proper diagnosis to go to someone who knows to look out for these things. And if you can't afford to go to individual therapy, definitely try a DBT group. I think that would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, just communicating to your loved ones what's going on. And, you know, it might be easier if you have a formal diagnosis than to say, I think I have this and then to Mm -hmm. then invalidate you. Mm -hmm. I know with me, so I think I brought up on the podcast, so I'll just disclose it anyway again. Like I got, I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, maybe like last fall Mm -hmm. or the, the, the therapist or the psychologist, sorry. Oh no, she's a psychiatrist um, because yes, that, that was her business card. Like, um, she she didn't say like you have BPD, but she said like you exhibit a lot of a lot of like uh, the checklist let's say mm-hmm. and all the things that you're describing or we'd previously talked about it's but prior to last fall I never really had words to describe it I never had it was just like um, you know like you you go from event to event or you go from day to day or let's say a relationship to a relationship and you you don't really know what it is you're just like oh this mm-hmm. is normal for me or like let's yeah. say with a, a breakup a breakup is very intense it's emotion wise on both parties but like, I was never able to explain like my little like episodes of just like erratic behavior to me at the time it seemed like random behavior and I'm like do normal people go through this like is this is this like normal or is I'm, am I just being dramatic and like again as a woman I'm just like ah oh, maybe I'm just hormonal or maybe I'm just being maybe I am dramatic maybe I am you know the crazy ex-girlfriend let's say mm-hmm. um so kind of hearing about everything you're talking today, it's like, okay, um, it's it's objective. It's within the DSM. Other people have these things too. And there's, there's at this point in 2020, I don't think there should be stigma um, about seeking help or even not say holding a label of this, but just like, I always see it as like, and I'm sure you tell your patients this too. It's like the sooner you get a diagnosis or the sooner we can kind of categorize you into a subsection we can kind of provide a good intervention and get you the help you need right yeah and can definitely be kind of like this aha moment for someone to finally have a name to put to what they're experiencing um and even you know even if they have tendencies of something like bpd but not full-fledged disorder 
but mm-hmm. treatment's kind of the same. So just understanding what it is can be really helpful in getting the treatment you need. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but I know it's like some therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, they might like withhold someone's diagnosis until like later on or whatever it is. Because um, I, I don't know how often it is in psychology that people kind of hold on to their diagnosis too hard, let's say, and they kind of embody their diagnosis. Have you heard cases like that? Um, I've heard, I've heard of it happening, but I've never seen it firsthand. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think sometimes in therapy also, if the person doesn't ask, what's my diagnosis, it's not always relevant to bring up to them. Um, Mm -hmm. unless there is a specific function and you think it would be really helpful, then you, you might bring it up. But otherwise it's not that uncommon to either withhold the diagnosis because of this fear that they're going to hold on to it or because it's just not relevant in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Hi, welcome to the intermission segment of the Biotonal podcast. This is where typically advertisements, sponsor plugs are put in a podcast, but currently we have zero sponsors. So I'm just going to use this time to say, Thank you for tuning in, guys, and we would also really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, follow us across all the socials at Bitonal Podcast. If you have any ideas, feedback, comments, advice, stories you want to share, drop us a line at bitonalpodcast at gmail.com. That's all I really have to say. Okay. Back to the main segment. And I guess for the second half of this podcast, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about yourself and kind of the the person behind Anna Psychology <laughs> on YouTube, right? Because where are you at now, dude? You're like, I think I checked this morning. You're at 35. Are you at 35.8K? Yeah. Ladies so. and gentlemen, 38 point uh five thousand that's a lot right yeah it Um, definitely took off faster than i thought oh i'm telling you so again i i found you early on in the pandemic and then i i don't i don't i can't if i'm being honest i don't remember where you were sitting at but i know it wasn't anywhere near that number (laughs) and i checked uh maybe a week ago before our interview i was like whoa she's blowing up and then this morning i check i'm like whoa she blew up again that's crazy so uh okay about you first anna like what kind of inspired you or led you to pursue psychology itself yeah um, I feel like I don't have a very good story for that. And every time someone asks me, but um, <laughs> when I first took um, Psych 101 in college, um, it was really difficult, but I still really liked it. Um, I just enjoyed understanding people's behavior and thoughts yeah. on a very deep level. Um, and just the idea of understanding other people and understanding myself. Um, and I think I did know pretty early on that I was interested in personality disorders, especially mm-hmm. cluster B personality disorders, because yeah. they were just like a series of people in my personal life that exhibited <laughs> all of the cluster B. Um, and, you know, it's so it can be so explosive when you experience it. So yeah. I just wanted to understand and learn as much as possible about that. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, once you again, like, once you know the label, it's like you start, you start like not psychoanalyzing everyone in your life, but you start being like, hmm, hmm, this person, hmm, yeah. you know. So that, that's interesting. So I guess you knew pretty early on, back in college, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of like your clinical psychology degree right now, like, where are you at with that in terms of the timeline? Um, so I just got my master's so I'm two years in and then I have two more years of school and one year of internship which is kind of part of the program so Mm -hmm. in three years I can finally get my doctorate degree 
Okay, so you still got a, a long road ways to go, right? Yeah, no, yeah, it's a big commitment. When you said clinical psychologist, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I've heard that's a really long road. And you equally need to get like the theory and the, the clinical experience, right? Yeah. So, um, like not to ask you, I feel like now I'm asking you the question of like, what do you want to be when you grow <laughs> up? When Or like, what are you doing after undergrad or, or after college? Like, did you have a general idea of what you want to do with clinical psychology? Um, I always kind of thought private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in uh, mostly community mental health sites since joining grad school, but um, yeah. I think I would like maybe a group practice now because I still like the idea of private practice, but um, I think the direction that the field is going in is a little bit more like team focused with like psychiatrists working with a therapist, working with the PCP. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you have more of like a group practice, it's also a better opportunity to kind of get people's consultations if you maybe don't understand a client's presentation or if you just need a second opinion Mm -hmm. and also it's less of an individual responsibility to do the insurance paperwork which doesn't sound (laughs) fun yeah and and I guess like do you do you foresee yourself like carrying on with the YouTube channel and things like that into your later into your career yeah I hope so um that's the goal yeah (laughs) yeah. it's strange because I get bored with things kind of easily but I hope I keep this going because it's a really good resource to have and it's good to you know you can do it anywhere from anywhere um it doesn't take all that long to do so it's definitely something to have I think you're being modest when you say that um youtube channels and at the frequency you're posting and i feel like it's a big commitment like how do you keep up with all of that because i remember yeah maybe i don't know what week it was but i think you post like two videos in the same week or maybe i came i stumbled upon both of them i was like oh my god this girl's like just pumping out content (laughs) yeah i was doing a video every day for a while oh my gosh yeah now i started this new new um practicum kind of like an internship so now i had to cut back to four and then once classes start back up i'm probably gonna have to cut back even more so i know you talked about the your your youtube channel being like you know a personal goal or a project let's say but like what actually motivated you to start the youtube channel um so when the coronavirus outbreak happened um i just got a little bit anxious about everyone losing their jobs and the economy taking a toll. And I had already been thinking about making a YouTube channel just because, you know, it's hard for people to get access to that kind of information unless they have a therapist, which not everyone can afford to do. Um, So I thought, you know, this is a good time to do this. It's like I'm doing classes and work Mm -hmm. from home. Um, Perfect opportunity to finally get started on this and yeah that was a good way of kind of regulating my own fear about the future is to kind of take control yeah um have you have you had people message you be like hey doc um can you (laughs) diagnose me have you yes uh yeah sometimes I get emails I had to put like a little message before it's where it says my email address because you know Mm. I had to say that like I can't be giving anyone therapeutic advice and I can't be your therapist I can only give therapy through the agency that I work with like that's locally because there are like laws that you can't practice um if you're in a different state for example of course um but people still do it (laughs) yeah I know it's like just a just a quick question and then then they like tell tell you about their lives and like what do you think (laughs) I know yeah it happens it happens a lot um with regards to the channel like what have you liked about it so far and having being a YouTuber, let's say? Um, I really like just how much I've learned that's going to help me in my career. Um, and mm-hmm. I just feel like now I have even like more knowledge to help me like in classes um, yeah. because I'm doing research on things that I wouldn't otherwise be doing. I would probably just be at home watching Netflix, but um <laughs> Yeah, it's good to like expand like different areas of knowledge. Um, yeah. And it's 
it's really good because teaching other people is the way to learn it because otherwise I'm and my memory is not the best so it yeah. definitely helps to like consolidate information exactly um, and just like people commenting that my videos help them that is always a pro yeah the goal yeah number one fan right here so <laughs> So I like, trust me, like if you if you ever like even if you do wind wind down into the semester, like uh, I, I think you should keep up with it. Like don't don't ever let this one go. So yeah, get, thank you. follow the momentum, follow the momentum. <laughs> and uh, this is a question I like to ask every YouTuber, let's say. But um, what's like the tricky thing you've had to deal with ha having a YouTube channel and a platform? Um, I mean, it was definitely scary at first to like put myself out there and not know if yeah. people are going to judge me. Um, and for the most part, the reception has been pretty good. But, you know, there are always people that have something they don't like. Um, yeah. A lot of just sexist commenters every single day, like people telling me like what to wear or like yeah. getting mad at me for wearing a tank top. Um <laughs> This morning I woke up to <laughs> this guy posted a comment that was like seven long paragraphs. Um, wow. Just basically calling me a dumb feminist. I, oh, gosh. I, I didn't even read it. I just muted it. I mean, like, that yeah. sucks that he spent that long on that message. You should be flattered, Anna. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, but like beyond just like the sexist comments, people, you know, kind of nitpick. And it's always hard to like, not say anything wrong when recording one of these videos like yeah. I try to be someone that's very careful about my words yeah. and then it's always a little tricky when people you know, maybe misinterpret small things and I, I have to be even more careful and it's just it feels a little bit limiting on what I can mm -hmm. say of course um yep that's that's youtube for you right <laughs> and after a period of time like you're gonna be better at just filtering out the negative comments and then maybe one day you see the next seven paragraph comment <laughs> and you're like oh, this is hilarious yeah and you move on right so that's what it is yeah so yeah and again as as like a, a, a subscriber like thank you so much for doing what you do of course and being consistent and i also side note for people like anna includes like timestamps, which i feel like not pe not many people do enough <laughs> of that so thank you for doing that because you can kind of skip not skip forward but you can kind of like remember what point main points there are yeah i'm glad you like them yeah yeah keep them coming um and in terms of like final this kind of takes us this takes us to the end of the, our little discussion list here like do you want to add any final thoughts before we let you go um just that you know hearing about bpd you know is always fascinating um but also just keeping in mind that it's misunderstood and i just hope this helped anyone um, understand it better and the last question this is the question like I never I never tell you guys in advance <laughs> I, I kind of ask it on the spot to get a very organic uh, response and it, you know it, it, it kind of sounds cheesy and like cliche and ew, like, ew, like ew, what is that right but like um, like what is your vision for the world or like through what you're doing as a student, as a YouTuber, as an advocate, as a future clinical psychologist, like what what's your vision for the world? And yeah, it's a good question. Um, Take your time with it. No right or wrong answer. I guess I don't know. Maybe the world can relax a little bit. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> it sounds like just take a chill pill. No, but like. Um, I feel like the world's very polarized right now and people are just kind of hating on each other for the sake of like this us versus them mentality and you know everyone just like taking a step back taking a deep breath and um, just being more relaxed about their opinions that's um that's a good answer because I fully agree I fully agree and that's like a very overgeneralizing theme just for the time being, while the world's chaotic enough, maybe maybe we should all take like half a chill pill, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll give you this opportunity to kind of plug yourself as a <laughs> self-plug. Um, where can the folks find you, Anna, on the socials or YouTube? 
Um, so it's Ana Psychology, A-N-A Psychology, um, just on YouTube. I'm, I'm going to come out with merch soon. And oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I hope it's not too corny. So far, I, I have like an idea for um, pet hoodies <laughs> that mm-hmm. says honorary um, therapy cat or dog because <laughs> my cat's always in the videos. Oh yeah, you're. Well, oh, this is something I forgot to ask. What's your cat's name? Her full name's Countess Chianti. <laughs> Countess. <laughs> is she a debutante? Like, what is this? That's cute. Yeah, she she kind of she comes in the videos, and I just think, oh, so cute. Yeah. And you zoom in on her, I'm like, oh, <laughs> so cute. Yeah, she's a personality. I think you should make a video of just with her. You know, just I have interviewing one. her. Do you actually? <laughs> I have one diagnosing her excessively cute disorder <laughs> oh i need to i need yeah, yeah link me that later I okay mine on that one. Oh, that's hilarious okay so um yeah and if it's okay with you like uh, traditionally with all my interviews is it okay if i include a link to your youtube channel within yeah, the absolutely. episode description and mm. uh, kind of uh, you know so the people can find you and get access to your great great videos and um and that's all for me, pretty much, Anna. And I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy student and, you know, doing these things, kind of going on a podcast isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. So, and I think, I think whatever we talked about today was not only helpful for me, but I know it'll be helpful for someone else. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Okay? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay. I hope you have a wonderful day, Anna. You too. All right. Thank you.